Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. Good chilly morning, good chilly afternoon, good chilly evening, and good really chilly middle of the night. <laughs> it's chilly. Yeah, it's winter. Um, we were we were talking yesterday with our um, assistant Raquel, and she was saying how cold it was. And then Stu started talking about Utah because we're in California, so we felt silly. <laughs> you wimps, you wimps out, out there in California. Yeah, yeah, fifty six so, and cold. It, it got down <laughs> okay. to twelve. Here. It got to, down to twelve here this morning. So, wow. Mm. Yeah. Uh, good to see you again. Yes. Today's topic is going to be placental abruption, and we're going to get to that. But before that, we obviously have to catch up and do some other things. And And I'm going to let you start to see if you have anything you want to catch up with. You know, uh, not much has been happening for me this week. I'm, on, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm on call. I have a very busy month. Um, I don't usually take uh, four to five clients, but I did this month because my other months are a little bit lighter. And I, you know, you know how it is. They'll, some will go this month, some will go next month. One went last month. So it's all, I know, I trust it's all going to turn out, but it feels like my LA schedule where I was just very busy. So I'm kind of like waiting because I know that the flurry is going to happen. So I'll have lots of birth stories to share this month. Um, <clears throat> but this week, is, this week has just been, you know, that kind of week after the holidays, right? You take down your Christmas tree, you kind of try to start to get caught up with all the stuff that you weren't doing. And, um, and as you guys can hear, I'm still getting over whatever this is. So um, trying to, to take my advice that I would give others and uh, rest when I'm not needed, when I'm not working. So. Well, for today's cultural reference, um, if people are Seinfeld fans, they know that Seinfeld was famous for for writing a basically a script about nothing. And you and I, you and I could write a script, a whole podcast about waiting. <laughs> yes, we could. Like, what do you do when you're waiting? Because waiting is a huge part of what midwives and birth workers generally do, unless you're sort of working a shift or something, and then you you're on and you're off. But if you're solo practitioner or on call, there's a lot of waiting going on. <laughs> You know? There's a lot of waiting and, and, and being and being flexible. And I think that that's that's a great um, thing, Stu, because like I know we have a lot of people who are just starting in their career as midwives and things like that. And so I remember having to adjust to the lifestyle of like not packing everything in, but really taking like you don't want to wait like you're waiting. Does that make sense? You want to wait like you're not waiting. You just want to keep doing your life and know that something can change, but you don't want to sit around just not doing anything because then half your life would be not doing anything. So, yeah, And there, there's a group of us that do that. And there's a group of us that actually sit around and do absolutely nothing because they can't compartmentalize. And I, I was, I was, I was in that group originally mm -hmm. when I, when I was busy or when I was on call, I, I really couldn't get into going to a movie or, Reading, mm -hmm. reading something or, or working on a blog. And I just couldn't focus. Mm -hmm. I just wanted, I, all, I just wanted to sort of listen to music and nap. And because, you know, I might be up all night. And as I got older, it got harder. Yeah. To, to be up all night. So, yeah. 
anyway, um, so we are a podcast about waiting and, and Seinfeld was one about nothing. But um, so I just want to make a couple of heads up announcements here. I'm going to I did I recorded some podcasts recently. I think I might have mentioned the Down to Birth podcast. Not out yet. And that will be mostly on growth restriction. But we wandered off on a lot of topics. And then I was on the VBAC Junkie podcast, which will come out in early February. And that is uh, obviously about VBAC, <laughs> so, as the title would in, instill. And then uh, this morning, I had the privilege of speaking with our friend Deborah pa Pascali Bonaro of Orgasmic Birth fame. And I was on her Orgasmic Birth podcast, and we did not talk about much about orgasmic birth. We talked about a lot of other things that she asked me questions on, and that won't be coming out in six or seven weeks. So obviously, when those things come out, we'll be we'll be linking them on our Instagram um, uh, to and to other ways of getting you out there to know that we're talking out in other places as well. And you said Deborah was so pleasurable. <laughs> she was. What she's just got she's got just a, a wonderful demeanor. She's just uh -huh. up. Yeah, that's beautiful. She's, she's up. Um, so I have some cervix follow-up stuff before we get to our topic today. Um, and also, um, uh, well, a couple things. One was from, uh, one well, of our, well, before you do that, yeah, I wanted to just mention that for those of you who are just listening to the podcast, um, there's some exciting things that are happening. And, um, one of them is our Patreon. And the cool thing about joining the Patreon is that you get to see Stu and I. So I know you enjoy hearing the conversations, but some people really like to see us interact and we refer to things sometimes. And so on Patreon, it will be ad-free and you'll get to see us recording. You'll get to see us in person. So that'll be kind of fun. Um, and then some of the other things that um, will be available is access to bonus content. So every week, Stu and I will be alluding to a conversation that we'll be having on Patreon. Last week, um, we had, a, I thought, I hope people join in because I thought that was a great conversation about um, breach and when there's a foot. So that was, that was really interesting. And today, Stu, what are we going to be talking about in our additional content? We're going to talk about an article that came out in the Gray Journal, which is the American Journal of OBGYN, on um, the 30-minute rule. If people don't know what the 30-minute rule is, the 30-minute rule is kind of like when they call an emergency C-section at the hospital, you're supposed to have the baby out within 30 minutes. And there was a good editorial or opinion piece out. Actually, yeah, I think it's an opinion piece um, on why that probably isn't a good idea. So anytime, anytime there's an article out there that wants to pull back on some sort of rigid algorithmic thing, uh, I'm in. So we're gonna re we're gonna review that. <laughs> great. So we're gonna talk about that. So there's all kinds of other other great things that Raquel has put in here for us. Um, priority and getting your questions answered on the podcast. Um, and then also Dr. Stu is gonna debrief on the latest medical news. Um, we're gonna have live Q and A's. Um, and then access to the bonus content, which you talked about, and a searchable podcast directory. So those of you who love hearing from us every week, we really think you're going to love joining this Patreon community. So check it out. Yeah, I think I would join just for the fact that I get to see you uh, visually and also uh, for the uh, <laughs> podcast directory thing, because I can't tell you how many times 
people write me and say, did you do a podcast on this topic? And it's like, yeah, we did. But before the last year or so, I used to come up with clever top uh, titles. And then you, you instructed me that we need to put the topic in the title. So I try to be clever with the topic as opposed to just clever. And, but you can't search it. Spotify has a search engine for pod for your podcast. Uh, I, uh, Apple and iTunes don't, don't have the same thing. So uh, before you write to us about what, if we said something on a podcast, search it in Spotify first and also check your spam box for my emails. <laughs> I keep telling people that every week. Okay. Uh, last last week's podcast was about the cervix. Yeah. All things cervix, and and um, I've got like three or four things here that I want to go over about that before we get into abruption. One was from Instagram user a light within the dark all underscored on Instagram, and it's a repost from at slingin underscore mama, and it just talks about cervical dysplasia. Um, can be um oh i can't read the I can't read my handwriting <laughs> oh, oh it's correlated sorry thank you it's correlated with low folate they think and that's why birth control pills smoking alcohol and mtfhr mutations are more common in people who develop cervical dysplasia so they recommend folate as an is important for dna synthesis and repair so decreased levels slows this process and increases the ability of cells to become abnormal. So take methylated folate, and also if your PEP is abnormal in any way, like what's called atypical cells or what's early and you don't have to have anything done, but follow-up, one of the things you, they recommended were suppositories with green tea extract and curcumin. Um, you can check out the post at sling and underscore mama to find out a little bit more detail on that. But I'm not an expert in uh, herbology or like Hermione Granger or in uh, homeopathy, <laughs> but it makes sense to me to try these things to help boost your body's own ability to fix itself. Right. Okay. Great. Thank you. So this is a letter from a, a midwife. Let's see. Uh, oh, no, it's from Dr. Carly, the chiropractor on Instagram. And she says, um, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. I have my 39-week sizing ultrasound today that my midwife wants. Wondering if I can request that for them to do it in a shorter time frame than 30 to 40 minutes. What would you suggest? So what would I what's my response to that, Bliss? I don't know. Tell me. Why are they even doing a sizing ultrasound? <laughs> exactly. That's not a normal thing. <laughs> okay. And said, and she said, I don't know why the midwife wanted an ultrasound. So this sort of starts to put, dip your toe in that thing we talked about a few times about how sometimes midwives are acting more like medwives. And I came up with a good analogy today with, uh, with Deborah on her podcast. You know, the term midwife is like the term ice cream. Yeah. They're not Doesn't all equal. Do anything. <laughs> You know, there's 65 different flavors of ice cream mm -hmm. or 30 flavors or whatever, but there's a lot of flavors of ice cream. There's a lot of flavors of midwives and certainly a lot of flavors of obese too. Right. So then she writes, um, I know you have 2000 messages to return to. Uh, so I appreciate your time. Just wanted to hear your thoughts on my pregnancy. Right now I'm 39 weeks. 
Um, I had the speedy ultrasound on Wednesday and all was well. Obviously, I didn't want one. I went to the midwife and she did a cervical check. I'm one centimeter and said the baby is weighing at 9.2 pounds after the ultrasound. So that's based on ultrasound measurements. And what do we think of that? But they can be incredibly inaccurate. Okay. So the midwife wants to do a stretch and sweep tomorrow. Wow. Are you sure this is the midwife? <laughs> this is like, yes. Yeah. yeah well, I, I trust Dr. Carly, the chiropractor. So yeah, it's a midwife. And I'm not picking on the midwife. I'm just reading that this is one of the things that happens. And, I am picking on the midwife. Okay. Sorry. That's a reversal of roles. This is good. And, <laughs> and, and um, Dr. Carly's obviously aware. And so the midwife wants to do a stretch and sweep tomorrow. So that's like a 39 plus a day or two. And is trying to push induction because she thinks the ultrasound thinks the baby's going to be nine pounds or, or more, which so, is so what? So what? So what? I don't want to do in a stretch and sweep. As, as I'm not due until January 4th. Thoughts. She thoughts to me. So my my response to her was, don't. <laughs> Just don't. <laughs> Just There's say no. no. I try to I try to be I try to be to the point. There's no reason to meddle. Some midwives practice a more medicalized model. Why she trusts ultrasound weight and why she thinks you can't deliver a baby you grew inside of you is what doctors are taught. And then she responds, right. The other midwife that's doing my birth is on the same page as you and me. Thankfully, the one yesterday was pushing the induction. Thank you so much for being here. And then I got an email uh, uh, on January 8th. So this would have been a week and a half later. We did it. Vaginal delivery, 16 hours of labor, 97 contractions. Counts the contractions. <laughs> oh, boy. That had to be an app. Yeah, but still. Okay. Mm -hmm. I've never heard that before, by the way. I've never heard anyone say <laughs> no. how many contractions they had. No. Well, that's going to be a new thing now. People are going to start counting their contractions. Please control. don't. Please don't. don't. Do it. Yeah, Midwife Bliss says, please don't. <laughs> no C-section, no epidural, no vaccines. Uh, Julia May came in. This was, let's see, um, 10 days after the ultrasound or, or so. And baby Julia May weighed 8 pounds, 10 ounces. <laughs> so 10 days later and still. 10 days later, it was half a pound lighter. And... Um, and uh, yeah, so they were way off on their estimated feet weight. Shocking. 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 Okay. Next is an editorial from the Green Journal. Uh, that's the OBGYN. And it's called, I'm going to, I'm just, I've read the whole thing, so you don't have to. I'm going to summarize for you. But this is by uh, Ann Drapkin Layerly, MD. And it's called Routine Pelvic Examinations and the Ethics of Screening. So I thought that this was a good one. Okay. And even if it wasn't a good one, I would still probably read it to you. I'm here to see my gynecologist. This was a surprising final line of the movie Barbie. I don't know if you saw Barbie. Did I did you see twice. So, okay. <laughs> so it's the last line in the movie Barbie. All right. Mm -hmm. The blockbuster movie of the year, a quote, mic drop, unquote, according to writer and director Greta Gerwig. In the scene, Barbie, now a human, smiling broadly and clad in a blazer, amid words of encouragement, is dropped off at the office building for what seems like a job interview, except she is there to see one of us, ostensibly noted journalist Jessica Bennett. Quote, now that Barbie is a human, she has a vagina instead of her infamous non-genitals. In evoking, even if tacitly, a pelvic examination, the movie's ending speaks to a cultural significance 
that the routine examination is not merely a medical procedure, but a threshold experience for women, for better or worse. At the same time, it reinforces the presumption that the presence of a vagina is reason enough for the invasive examination that has become synonymous with gynecologic care. In fact, the recent years have seen this resumption questioned. A systemic review by the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, which has a long acronym, concluded that there is insufficient evidence to make a recommendation regarding examination for asymptomatic non-pregnant women. In a research letter in this month's issue of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Norby et al. contribute to the evidence by weighing against the examination in the asymptomatic populations. Reporting on a retrospective chart review of more than 1,100 an annual gynecologic visits in women aged 21 to 35, the authors found that asymptomatic patients had a low rate, 1.2% of abnormal findings on pelvic examination compared with patients who were symptomatic at 32.4%, suggesting the examination's limited value as a screening tool. I've said this for a really long time. I said that in my career, when I did, and I did, I did, I was that guy. I did those routine pelvic exams, bimanuals and pap smears. And it is so rare to ever find anything abnormal in a woman who has no complaints. Right. Right. Yet they were, we were doing them. I was doing them annually. Some of my associates in my office were having women come back every six months. Mm -hmm. when, I asked, <laughs> when I asked one of them once about it, he just said, well, that's what I was trained to do. And that's what I do. And obviously it generates more revenue for the, for his practice too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there, but there, there's more, there's been evidence for a while, but this is sort of consolidating it to the fact that there may be no benefit to doing these things. The, um, that organization with the long acronym calls for, <laughs> <laughs> calls for studies examining the effects of the examination on a range of healthy outcomes, as well as studies evaluating and quantifying the harms but calls for more data. But calls for more data. Oh, calls for more data. Neglect the question of whether the continued practice is ethical in the first place. And there's no mention in this thing. But I, I, I made myself a note about the psychology of doing this exam and what it does to women. Well, there is mention of it. And I'll get, to, I'll get to that in a second. For a screening test with no proven benefit, the answer is probably not. Not ethical, that's what she means. Mm -hmm. Because screening tests engage otherwise healthy patients, the medical and ethical standards for performing them for performing them is higher than it is for diagnostic tests. Um, and a pelvic examination is not just any screening test. No. It is invasive in a singular and thoroughgoing way. I've not heard that word before. Um it can compound trauma in patients and hit with histories of sexual violence. Nevertheless, rates of pelvic examination in adult women have dipped only slightly in recent years since the practice has been questioned, and not at all in those aged 30 to 44. Recent surveys indicate that almost all physicians would still perform a bimanual examination on asymptomatic patients, and that most women consider the examination to be reassuring and believe it useful for detecting disease. The examination has, in short, been routinized, another nice word, which mm -hmm. makes it a hard, if worthwhile, habit to break. Of course, 
Pelvic examinations are sometimes necessary and will remain a part of reproductive health care. They are required for cervical cancer screening, though less frequently than they once were. And we discussed that in the podcast uh, on the on the uh, rates of when you should be screened and depending on your age group. Not the rates is the wrong word, but indications for screening and are indicated in patients with symptoms during pregnancy. However, data to justify the routine use for screening in asymptomatic patients are lacking. Okay, so I wrote down, for whatever reason, I wrote down, like vaccination for, oh, like vaccinations for pediatricians, the annual vaginal exam may just be a reason to get a patient in the door. Yes. Right. So I like that. Um, yes, I like it too. And um, I have mentioned this before on the podcast, but one of my teachers um, said that, you know, whenever you touch a woman's body, you have to be respectful of the fact that a third of women have trauma. So, you know, um, <clears throat> and that is not something that I experienced trauma-informed care when I was receiving care from obstetricians for my annual exams. Um, and, you know, I've witnessed midwives um, being really conscientious about that. And we talked about that, like being able to put in your own speculum, like taking your time, having conversations with you before you have your clothes off. I mean, there's lots of ways that you can honor that, but um, it's a big deal. Really especially, especially, yeah, it is. And especially when it has little to no benefit. Especially, yes. <laughs> yes, thank you for that. So if, if a woman isn't complaining about anything, like pain on her side or menstrual irregularities or anything, she's just coming in because for whatever reason she wants birth control pills, which we're not necessarily a big fan of. And there are there are sort of laws in California that say you shouldn't be prescribing for someone you haven't seen within a 12-month period or something like that. So I know people violate that all the time, but I think there is a regulation on the books about that. And so doctors make them come in once a year, but you could just come in and say, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks. Here's your prescription. That's right. You don't need to be doing pelvic exams and certainly not pap smears. Um, Even with hormonal birth control, you're saying? Yeah. and it, it, Yeah. There's so much more to the history before you need to do that. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, I mean, hormonal birth control is a risk factor for for that, but it also yes. usually implies, not always, but implies more sexually, potentially sexually uh, sexual activity. So I'm not sure that the birth control pill itself, although according to a, a light within the dark, it does lower your you know lower your folate. So maybe that contributes, and that's part of it. But mm -hmm. the, the idea of having to screen, then you can do the screening, but that would be in that age group every three to five years. Not, right. not annually. Yes. Okay. One last uh, funny, funny one. Um, this is from Lisa524 on Instagram. And she just writes really quickly. She says to me, she sent me a direct message. Hi, Dr. Stu. Do you have any podcasts on cervical exams? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote her back and said, yeah, we just did one. It'll come out next week. Um, and then uh, I asked my midwife if they do routine cervical exams. And she said, not, quote, routine, unquote, but they do start doing them at 36 weeks to check progress. So I said, I'm pretty sure that's the definition of routine. 
Me too, Stu. <laughs> Midwives, what are we doing? Why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? I want to decline them, but I want more information and confidence in my decision. Um, Bliss will give you some confidence, but but uh, thank you guys for sending these little things that make me chuckle. I know that I know that there's a seriousness behind this message mm -hmm. that she wants reassurance or an answer, and I can't answer everybody, but but I think you guys are really smart. Our fellow travelers are are. They, they recognize that the, this sort of monkey business that's going on. Yes. And uh, we're so glad that you guys are standing up for yourselves and questioning the norm because it's important. Okay. So before we come back with abruption, let's take a quick break, support our sponsors, and we'll be right back. But if you're on Patreon, you don't have any commercials. Lucky you. Bliss. What is Element? L-M-N-T. It's an amazing sponsor, first of all. We love them so much. But it's a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS, like... Us. That's right. <laughs> I taught you well. <laughs> it is. It, it's got a lot of uh, good salts in it and uh, no sugar. I even uh, took a little notes here and they have um, 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, which helps maintain... Fluid balance, regulates your blood pressure, and supports muscle function, mood, and bone health. Which is great for pregnant mamas, breastfeeding moms, and absolutely for birth workers. So make sure that you have some in your in your birth bag if you need it or if your clients do in labor. For sure. Electrolyte deficiency or imbalances can cause like headache, cramps, fatigue, and weakness, especially in the birthing world. You know, a long time when we, before what I used to do it, but you still do. <laughs> You have a lot of sleep after being up all night and snacking on like not such good food sometimes. And I carry it with me whenever I travel and I add it to my water, like in the hotel room and stuff. And I spent a lot of time recently in hotel rooms. It's a great sponsor and they've, they've been doing really well and I'm really proud to be um, supporting them. They have multiple flavors. Your favorite uh, is raspberry, right? Raspberry is mine and yours is mango yeah. chili. But I, I do have I do have some sad news. Aww. So long, old friend, to Lemon Habadero. Oh, man. They discontinued it? So they could concentrate on citrus salt, raspberry salt, orange salt, raw unflavored, mango chili, chocolate salt, and watermelon salt. Maybe they're going to come out with some new stuff, too. But I trust <laughs> Elements. I trust that the, uh, they've done a deep dive into the research. They put their whole soul into it. We would like you to go to Drink Element. That's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, all one word. And when you do that, you'll get a free sample pack with your every order. Go do it. Go do it. Okay, we're back. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, <laughs> Bliss, I, I, uh, we've got a couple letters. Yep. Some of them are a little heart-wrenching because this yeah. topic is obviously a serious topic. Yeah. Uh, it's not about like, whether cervical exams every week from 36 weeks are routine, this is a serious topic. Abruption um, can be life-threatening for both mother and baby, and it, it actually is. And the first letter represents that, and I I, I want you to read it because <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll break down. Okay, I'm going to read it. Um, good afternoon, Dr. Stu and Goddess Bliss. This is going to be a long one, but I will try to be direct 
and to the point. First and foremost, thank you both for providing families everywhere with information so that they may have true informed consent. I had my baby girl on August 5th, 2023, who was a surprise full Frank Breach baby. During my pregnancy, I felt compelled to listen to your episodes every day. When my midwife, who took your Reteach Breach course, called out rumping as I roared my baby into the, this world, I had no doubts in my mind that my body could do it and that my baby knew what to do. That's awesome. Um, while I was pregnant, my friend who is a nurse in the ED department, what emergency department. Oh, okay. Okay. Here became pregnant with her third baby as well. After seeing my post about home birth, she decided to have a home birth as well. Jordan wrote into your podcast when she was 26 weeks pregnant and you answered her question on episode 338, breach birth finally explained. If you recall, she was planning for a VBAC at home. First baby was a C-section due to breach. Second baby was a successful VBAC in our hospital here. She felt very confident that this would be a deep, empowering spiritual experience. Leading up to her birth, we would talk daily about how the podcast opened her eyes to how messed up the medical system is to birth in. She planned on going back to school after the baby was older to become a home birth midwife to serve our rural area. She went into labor Sunday, December, December 17th. According to the midwife, everything was going seemingly normal until it suddenly wasn't. Unfortunately, Jordan and her son, Mac, lost their lives during childbirth. She had a uterine abruption, a uterine rupture and placental abruption. I'm writing you because for some reason I can't find information on your podcast about placental abruption, how, why this happens. As far as uterine rupture, my midwife has seen three in VBAC just this year alone. She suspects new suture techniques, but I'm curious what you think. Also, this seems to be cathartic while being deep in my grief of losing my friend. Thank you for taking the time to read this and possibly respond. You both are making waves, Gabriella. Gabriella. I didn't even read it and, I, and I'm like tearing up. Yeah, that's a hard one. Yeah, I, 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 I haven't heard much about an increase in risk of uterine rupture. Uh, it, we, it's a known risk. And when it happens, um, placental abruption is often either the, you know, it's the chicken or the egg thing. Was there an abruption that caused the rupture? Did the rupture cause the abruption? Uh, ultimately, it doesn't really matter. Uh, specifically in this case, it's just tragic. Um, and uh, I want to, and I just want to say my, uh, deepest condolences and my heart goes out to both, um, the birth team and to the family. Um, cause this is a really hard thing in my many, 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 many years of, of being around midwives, um, and supporting out of hospital birth. Um, I personally have never met someone who has lost a mom. So um, it's a very rare situation. So for this midwife to have seen three in a year, something different is happening. That's not common at all. Three uterine ruptures in a year. I mean, yeah. not, three, not three maternal deaths, but three uterine yeah. ruptures. Yeah. That's not I, I, in my 40, now 41 years, uh, I have since residency. So I guess I would take, say 37 years, um, knock wood. I uh, have not had that happen. So 
Um, it is a very rare thing. It, 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 it's, you know, it's hard to know if the, if this had been in the hospital, would it have been different? Women die in the hospital too. Um, yeah. so it's, it's really, you know, but it's just a tragic thing, but, it, but it leads to the sort of the, the talking about abruption and how sudden it can be. And that brings me to the next letter, which is from Kelsey. And it says, hi, Dr. Stu and midwife bliss. I'm a first time mom and four weeks postpartum. I was planning a home birth with midwives and the long story short, people always do that. <laughs> um, I went to 43 weeks and three days and had a placental abruption before labor even started, ever started. I had a healthy, uncomplicated pregnancy up until then. I'm 30 years old and generally in excellent health. I'm having a hard time integrating my experience and understanding how I ended up in the tiny percentage of women who actually needed a cesarean section. I would love to hear any insights you have on post-dates and placental abruption. I'm struggling to understand why my body wouldn't go into labor naturally before something like this happened. Uh, I just want to add, before I keep reading, that um, being post-dates is not a known risk factor for placental abruption. Most, most placental abruptions occur before 37 weeks. Not all, but most. Mm -hmm. It was such a sweet experience to finally meet my baby after waiting so long. He's perfectly fine. But I was and continue to be so sad that I wasn't able to have him at home. My birth experience has left me with so many questions. Did my placenta really just get too old? And why wouldn't I go into labor before that? If I had done a biophysical profile at 42 weeks, would there have been some indicator that my placenta may not continue to function normally? I want to make sure that people understand there's a difference between a placenta that's becoming insufficient and not functioning normally and, and an abruption. All right. They're, they're, again, because abruptions are rare post-dates, it, it really isn't this. It, they're, they're not correlated. Mm -hmm. um, that's good. That's good information to tell people, Stu. I chose not to have ultrasounds this pregnancy, but if I had stayed pregnant one more day, I was planning to get a biophysical profile as it was starting to push my comfort zone. What is the incidence of placental abruption in post-dates pregnancies? We talked about that already. And what is the incidence of placental abruption due to induction at 42 weeks? That I don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't know that there's a number for that. Um, but we're going to get into that. We're going to, as I do, take a little bit of a deep dive into abruption coming up. My mom and grandma both had 43-week pregnancies. So that may be normal for her. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how long her cycles were. I don't she may have five week cycles. And if she has five week cycles and 43 weeks is really 42 weeks, but when I, you know, that, that's not, that's not the point of this letter. So I knew it can be a variation of normal. And it was really important for me to go into labor spontaneously and let my baby choose his birthday. So ultimately I don't regret my decision not to be induced. Still, I had such an intense and dramatic experience just okay. suddenly started bleeding like a faucet that would not stop. And it has me questioning everything I thought was true about birth. Thanks for all you do. And thanks for reading. Uh, Kelsey. So here can I say something? Can yeah, I say something sure. about that real quick? Of course. Of course. So this thing, this thing about questioning everything that you uh, know about or you think about birth. Um, there's a midwife that was part of my education. Her name is Marla Hicks, and she says something that uh, I think is really beautiful, like talking about nature, and she equates it to the ocean, and she says. I trust nature, but I also respect that the ocean can be a dangerous place. It just depends, you know, it can be fine. And then all of a sudden not fine. And, 
And I think that that's a healthy respect for knowing that the majority of the time things will go smoothly. However, there are times just like in life where things can surprise you and are unexpected. It's, it's not a, it's not perfect just as everything is not perfect. And so I think when we lean into this, like I trust birth conversation, you also have to have an understanding and a respect for the fact that sometimes we have incidences that are tragic and um, that's part of your decision-making process is to understand that that is part of the risk benefit analysis in deciding whether or not to have a home birth, whether or not to, to stay pregnant, because most of the time these things will turn out, but no one can guarantee a hundred percent anywhere. Well said. And here we have two examples of with placental abruptions. One that ended in terrible tragedy, one that ended with a perfectly normal baby. And that is the nature of placental abruption. So let's sort of take a little bit of a deeper dive. I pulled up an article from the National Institute of Health. Are you okay? I'm fine. I <laughs> There's a very big um, beetle or something climbing on my, so I was just trying to decide if I needed to handle it, but I think this will not hurt me. So yes, I'm fine. Keep going. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you can leave that in. That was pretty funny. You're just, your eyes just wandered up to the ceiling and you're looking at something. Um, okay. So this is an article on placental abruption from the NIH, and I will of course link it in the show notes. And um, I did my usual highlighting job as Bliss likes to comment on my highlighters i have different colors now i, I have pink and blue today so um <laughs> well the yellow's running out <laughs> okay so placental abruption is the early separation of a placenta from the lining of the uterus before the completion of the second stage of labor mm -hmm. so anytime from when you're pregnant all the way through until baby is delivered it, the placenta can abrupt Mm -hmm. All right. And abruption means separation. And there are degrees of that. And we're going to get into that in a second. Uh, risk factors can be thought of in three groups. Health history, including behaviors um, and past obstetrical events in your, in your history. Mm -hmm. Things going on with your current pregnancy and then unexpected trauma. Uh, factors that can be identified during the health history that increase the risk of placental abruption include the usuals, the usual, the usual call, usual suspects. Yeah. Smoking, cocaine use, maternal age over 35, which always gets thrown in there. I have no clue as to why that's a risk factor. Um, hypertension and placental abruption in a prior pregnancy or previous history of placental abruption. Conditions specific to the current pregnancy that may precipitate placental abruption are multiple gestations, polyhydramnios, preeclampsia, sudden uterine decompression, which is when essentially kind of goes along with polyhydramnios, right. when the membranes rupture and a ton of fluid just comes out really rapidly and the uterus changes size rapidly. And I'll explain the mechanism of that coming up. And, and a short umbilical cord, which is really interesting because I've really never seen it related to that. 
but they're throwing these risk factors in, but risk factors don't mean anything unless you know what the actual risk is of this risk factor, because it could have a relative risk of 1.1 or something like that, where it's one in a thousand and now it's one in uh, 911 or what, I don't know what 1.1 is. I can't figure that out, but something like that. Um, finally, trauma to the abdomen, which is pretty obvious, mm -hmm. such as a motor vehicle collision, fall, or violence, like a blow to the abdomen, um, may lead to placental abruption. Um, all of those tend to be what I would consider a what's called a sudden deceleration injury. In other words, you're, you're moving at a certain speed and then you suddenly stop. And what happens is if you if you understand momentum is that you may stop, but the things inside of you keep going. Mm -hmm. Depending on the location of the placenta, you can have the placenta can shear because the when it when it gets when you're going 40 miles an hour, you get hit by an airbag. Um, if somebody takes a you know, God forbid, a baseball bat hits you or something like that, um, those sorts of things, or if you fall. And I'm not talking about falling on your knees. I'm talking about like falling and hitting your belly or falling down a flight of stairs or something like that. Yeah. And it has to be considerable. I mean, I get calls frequently about women who have fallen in some way and um, <clears throat> it, it has to be a considerable fall. But if you're nervous about it, you know, you go in and you get the baby checked, go on the monitor for a little while. If you don't have any bleeding or anything, you know? Yeah. I mean, that was, that's the standard recommendation that's taught in training. For all of us, if a, if somebody calls you and says, oh, I just slipped and fell on my ass on the ice, um, the, the suggestion is when you're in the second or third trimester is to go in for monitoring, mm -hmm. to look for evidence of uterine irritability, that sort of thing. Okay, so here's why this happens. The uterus is a muscle and is elastic, whereas the placenta is less elastic than the uterus. Mm -hmm. Therefore, when the uterine tissue tissue stretches suddenly, the placenta remains stable and the vascular structures connecting the uterine wall to the placenta tear away. Can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, this is, we're describing abruption. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Most of the time it's not going to happen, but I'm saying if you have an abruption, that's sort of the mechanism of why it happens. Right. The incidence of abruption, depending on who you read, is somewhere between one in 100 to one in 333 pregnancies. Okay, so I think we used to quote one in 200. Okay, average. Which not, yeah, which is not nothing. And clearly it's higher in those those things we talked about. Polyhydramnios, rapid decompression, multiple gestation, that sort of thing. Because you have over distension of the uterus, I believe. And, and you have two placentas, so I guess you have twice as much chance of it happening. Mm -hmm. Okay, with placental abruption, the woman is at risk for hemorrhage and the need for blood transfusions, hysterectomy, bleeding disorders, specifically DIC or disseminated intervascular coagulopathy, and renal failure. Renal failure actually comes from what's called acute tubular necrosis. It comes from shock. Your blood pressure drops you, and you damage your kidneys. It's usually reversible, by the way. Um, what is? DIC? No. Well, DIC is, but also so is uh, acute tubular necrosis or, or temporary renal failure from shock. Oh, okay. Your kidneys will recover. I've seen it twice. Uh, and uh, two women had to have dialysis for about five days. And then their kidneys and their kidneys then regenerated, recovered. Wow. 
bodies, body, human body is freaking amazing. So, Stu, I have a question for you. I'm shocked. What is it? <laughs> what is one thing in a woman's pregnancy that she can control? Because so much is out of our control. Uh, her nutrition. That's right. And we are so excited to be partnered with such an amazing company as Needed because they have focused on pregnancy, postpartum as being some of the most nutritionally demanding time in a woman's life. And it can be influenced by her nutrition status. So they support women during this time with all kinds of amazing products. Their line just has so many options. So make sure and check them all out. But Stu's going to tell us a little bit about um, their immune support because it's turning fall and we need that a little bit more right now during this time. Yeah, Needed has an immune support, uh, which is a popular choice right now with all the back to school germs and heading into the winter when we all tend to get sick more frequently. And the people ask sometimes, well, if I'm pregnant, can I take this product? And of course, yes, it was formulated uh, for pregnant mamas in mind. So it's uh, recommended and safe in pregnancy. Support is intended to complement, not replace other products that they offer as well. So it's just one of those things that you add to your, you know, your prenatal vitamins, your probiotic, your maybe your stress support, your sleep and relaxation support. But Bliss, I wanted to talk about something else today. Don't forget the men. That's right. We love the men. Right. So they have a sperm support, uh, men's pre and probiotic. And they say men play a critical role in conception and healthy pregnancies. I, I, I imagine that's true. <laughs> <laughs> they do. <laughs> and the preconception health can significantly impact both fertility outcomes and also the health of their future children. Needed's men fertility plan is a must for couples trying to conceive to support the multiple components of fertility, including sperm health, gut health, optimal nutrient levels, and testosterone levels, which, by the way, are falling worldwide. So you can do this and it works. Why not? I trust Needed's products with my patients because they use scientifically studied ingredients and perform rigorous third-party testing. And unlike other products on the market, Needed designs their products from the ground up using the latest research and insights from men's fertility practitioners. So, you know, we are a woman's podcast mostly, but I don't want those dads to feel excluded. So head over to thisisneeded.com and use code birthinginstincts for 20% off your one-time order. That's right. Thanks, Needed. Okay, so pathophysiology. The placenta is the fetus's source of oxygen and nutrients, as well as the way the fetus excretes waste products. Diffusion to and from the maternal circulatory system is essential to maintaining these life-sustaining functions of the placenta. When accumulated blood causes separation of the placenta from the maternal vascular network, these vital functions of the placenta are interrupted. So what happens when the placenta begins to shear off is it starts to bleed between the between the baby uh, between the placenta and the and the uterine wall. And as mm -hmm. that blood accumulates, there, there's membranes that hold it in place. So it doesn't generally go into the uh, amniotic cavity. It dissects behind it. And so if it doesn't stop, if it keeps pumping from these vessels that are going, Pressure. right, it's going to continue to expand and expand. And that's going to continue to cause more, more and more shearing of the placenta off the wall. Um, the clinical implications of placental abruption vary based on the extent of the separation and the location <laughs> of the separation. Placental abruption can be a complete or partial or 
and marginal or central. So there are three classes, well, there are four classes, class zero through three of placental abruption. And this is the terminology. I know my academic colleagues love terminology. They love classifying things. So let's look at it, what they said. Class zero is asymptomatic. So how do you know you have an asymptomatic abruption? You don't. You don't. That's right. Yeah. Discovery of a blood clot on the maternal side of a delivered placenta. Mm -hmm. Diagnosis is made retrospectively. Right. So that really is meaningless for the most part. Okay. Mm -hmm. Class one or mild. There's no sign of vaginal bleeding or a small amount of vaginal bleeding. There's slight uterine tenderness. The maternal blood pressure and maternal heart rate remain normal. And there's no signs of fetal distress. So these are common ones that we might see where a woman at 32 weeks has some unexplained bleeding. And of course, when you have unexplained bleeding at 32 weeks, you come in and you get checked. You make sure your cervix isn't dilating and you're not bleeding from cervical dilation. And you see some bright red blood. You put them on the monitor. They're having some mild uterine irritability. Your uterus is not really that tender, but it might be a little bit more so than ever. It might be a little bit firm, but not generally. And her vital signs are stable and the baby's heart rate's fine. But you uterine, got- you, you, you've said uterine irritability twice. What do you mean exactly by uterine irritability? That's why I love you. Because <laughs> I'm listening? <laughs> well, you're listening and also you're asking questions that other people might be, might be thinking. Yeah. Um, Normally, uh, if you put a monitor on a woman who's not in labor or anything like that, you're going to very now and then you're going to see a a contraction because the uterus rhythmically contracts intermittently throughout the day. That's a normal thing. By the way, the non-pregnant uterus does that as well. Uh So and you don't it's not the kind of cramps that you have when you have a menstrual period where where it hurts. Mm -hmm. This is just it's it's asymptomatic. uh, Because the because the uterus is a hollow organ, it actually does things similar to the intestine and almost peristalsis. And occasionally on ultrasound, you can actually see that on a GYN ultrasound. You can see the endometrium change shape as it works its way down toward the cervix. And it makes a a wave of a contraction. That's normal. Uterine irritability is where you're seeing more of that. But you're not seeing regular uterine contractions every three minutes, every five minutes, every six minutes. You're seeing a couple of contractions and then nothing for 10 minutes and then a couple more or that sort of thing, or a little bit of a pattern where you're seeing almost they call the sinusoid, where you're seeing just little, little um, contractions coming every 30 seconds, lasting 10 or 20 seconds. So that's a uterine irritability pattern. Most of those are not sensed by the mom. They don't even know what's happening. Right. It's interesting that we call it an irritability, but okay, sounds normal to me. Well, it's but it's. It's not it, w- when it's seen in conjunction with some vaginal bleeding. There, you, you. That's where you start to put it together. The vaginal bleeding is the problem, not the not the normal well, contractions. Well, that vaginal could bleeding leads to probably the the retroplacental blood causes the uterus to be irritable because in blood products and stuff, not only is it irritating, but there are prostaglandins and other things in there that are probably making the uterus be more irritable. Yeah, the only reason I'm being very specific about this is because I don't want people to think that, quote unquote, uterine irritability necessarily means that there's a problem because 
we we I always I tell people like when I feel a uterus that's quite responsive like that, like the you know like they're just having these kind of cramping contractions that aren't leading to anything. I tell them we call it an irritable uterus, but really it's just showing that your uterus is practicing for labor. It's not normally it's not a problem at all. So no, I, that's why they're buying it. It's yeah. not, and <laughs> and often it's seen when you're if you're dehydrated, if you're uh, if you overextend yourself. You can have it after after orgasm or after intercourse. You can have some uterine irritability, <laughs> but it doesn't. It doesn't. By the way, uterine irritability rarely changes the cervix. Yeah, so and, and not functional. Multips, multips yeah, they're not functional. Multips often have this happening to them. So, thank you for clarifying. Okay, so that was mild. Now we're going to go to class two, which is moderate. That can go from no sign of vaginal bleeding to a moderate amount of vaginal bleeding. They don't define small, moderate, and large amount of bleeding, but we all know what sort of that means. Um, anytime a woman who's not in labor sees bright red blood, that's not normal. Yeah. Most of the time, it's not a problem. It could be just a polyp or cervical irritability or whatever, but it's always something that you should notify your practitioner about. Okay. Slight uterine tenderness. Occasionally with tetanic contractions. So a tetanic contraction is a contraction that lasts a long time. Not just 40 to 60 seconds, but may go on for like five minutes. All right. Again, generally not a problem in and of themselves. You may see that actually even in a woman who's just on the monitor for whatever reason without a problem. Okay. And then uh, there is there is some change in vital signs. You might see maternal tachycardia, which is high heart rate. Mm -hmm. And you might see some orthostatic changes in mom's blood pressure. Okay. Lower or higher? Yeah. Be, well, generally lower. Orthostatic yeah. means it drops when you stand up. Yeah. Okay. Lower. Right. Um, evidence of fetal distress. So mm -hmm. if you're bleeding and you come in and, and you have what's called a class two abruption, there's going to be evidence. The fetus is going to start to show signs of that. Mm-hmm. And you're going to see it on the monitor. Yeah. And then if you actually did blood work, you might find there's a decrease in her fibrin, fibr, fibrinogen, which is a blood clotting product. In, it's being used up by the clots that are forming. And But again, that's, it's a late, that's not something that's generally helpful. I'll talk about labs in a second. And then class three, which is considered severe, which is kind that we're we we actually talked about probably in maybe both the cases the letters we read one might have been a class two but certainly the last one with class three uh it could go from no sign of vaginal bleeding because it's high up inside to obviously heavy vaginal bleeding you have a tetanic uterus or uterus that's board like in consistency it's just rock hard um the mother's in shock which means hypotensive tachycardic uh, body's trying to compensate because there's been so much blood loss. Uh, clotting profile alterations, you're going to see probably DIC, where the clotting factors are are being gobbled up inside. It's a, that's a potential problem because blood is supposed to clot. If you use up all your clotting factors, eventually you, it doesn't clot anymore, and then you're really chasing your tail. Uh, right. And then you have to then that requires transfusions of not only blood but all kinds of blood products. And then uh, with severe, you often see fetal death. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 
Classification of zero to one is usually associated with a partial marginal separation, whereas classification two and three is associated with complete or central abruption. Okay. Yeah. On uh, history and physical, when somebody comes in complaining of vaginal bleeding in the second half of the pregnancy, you need to do a focused history and, and physical is critical to differentiate the placental abruption from other causes of vaginal bleeding. Because a definitive diagnosis of placental abruption can only be made after birth when the placenta is examined. So in other words, when somebody's abrupting their placenta and we do an emergency, whatever for that, it's a presumptive diagnosis. The diagnosis is made postpartum, but we all know what that happens. I've seen cases where we thought the placenta abrupted, but then pathologically, they can't find anything. But yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. thinking a lot about that mom that I shared the story, the one that um, had a couple episodes of bleeding. And the very first time that we went in, the first doctor that we saw said she's having an abruption, she needs a cesarean. And she was like, no, <laughs> it's not happening. Um, and, <clears throat> and then we ended up figuring out it was, it was coming from her cervix, but this was, this was much later. So in a situation where someone just went with the first recommendation, which most people will in that situation, because you're, it's scary and you, you go to the hospital, the doctor tells you what you need to do and that's what you would do. Right. Um, but yeah, it sometimes it's not accurate. That's what I was thinking about. Right. It's, it, yeah, and you, you, that's why doing a history and physical and, and clinically assessing the person, uh, assessing the baby as well. You've got two patients there. Uh, you want to make sure that they're both fine. And then if things are fine, you can wait. Um, the advantages of waiting versus the advantages of, of delivering have to be have to be weighed. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I noticed, too, that you said um, with the last category um, that often there's a fetal demise, but you haven't mentioned anything about maternal. Mater maternal death with abruption uh, is obviously it happens. That was also a uterine rupture, the case that we read. That's um, right. But it's usually, it, it, you know, in modern, in modern uh, hospital settings and things like that, or even where you, where you have ambulance transfers and stuff like that, it would, it would have to be a catastrophic amount of bleeding and the mother would then probably die from uh, blood loss. But that is extremely rare. It's yeah. not even it's not even really emphasized in the article. So the fact that they don't even include it um, implies that it's probably very, very rare for maternal death to occur from abruption. Um, yeah, it's, 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 you're right. It's probably more having to do with the, with the uterine rupture. Yeah, and then she bled internally, which was... That's the that's a different thing. Yeah. Okay. Um, the most useful mechanism for recognizing the onset of placental abruption is an assessment of the patient. Look at the patient. <laughs> Ask questions. The physical exam includes palpation of the uterus. Mm -hmm. A novel a novel idea. Mm -hmm. The uterus is palpated for tenderness, consistency, and the frequency and duration of uterine contractions. The vaginal area is inspected for the presence of bleeding. However, a digital examination of the cervix should be delayed until a sonogram is obtained for placental location to rule out the possibility of what? Previa. Placenta previa. Yeah. Now, in my experience and what I was taught, there's a there's an obvious difference between placental previa, placenta previa bleeding, <laughs> sorry, and <laughs> abruption bleeding. 
Abruption bleeding is supposedly painful. Placenta uh, previa bleeding is painless. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Remember, the absence of vaginal bleeding does not eliminate the diagnosis of placental abruption. Right. Okay. Evaluation of vital signs to detect tachycardia or hypotension. Blood specimens such as a complete blood count, fibrinogen, clotting profile, type and RH might be collected. Why the type and RH? Well, one, if they're RH negative, they're going to need Rogam. But two, you might want to be sending blood down to the blood bank, uh, getting blood and blood products potentially available for their blood type. These laboratory values will not aid in the diagnosis of placental abruption, but will provide baseline data against which to evaluate the patient's condition over time. So you don't really use them. Um, some hospitals can turn them around really quick. Sometimes it takes hours to get these things back or even a day. Not going to necessarily be helpful. In somebody that's abrupting so bad that they're using up their clotting factors, you're, you're, you're not going to wait for the clotting factor results to come back to make that decision. Evaluation of fetal well-being is also included in the examination. Begin with auscultation of the fetal. Oh, begin with auscultation. Ask about fetal movement, recent changes in the baby's activity. Uh, continuous electronic fetal monitoring is initiated to identify looking for prolonged bradycardias, variability, uh, and presence of late decelerations. Okay? Makes sense. Okay, so evaluation. There are no laboratory tests or diagnostic procedures to diagnose placental abruption definitively. I'm repeating myself. An ultrasound examination is useful in determining the placenta location and eliminating the diagnosis of placenta previa. However, you know what I'm going to say here, the sensitivity of ultrasound in visualizing placental abruption is low. Yeah. But they'll always order it anyway. Okay. Because during the acute phase of placental abruption, the hemorrhage is isoechoic, which means it's the same density to the surrounding placental tissue. So you really can't see it. Mm -hmm. Days later, you can, you can, because it starts to liquefy and it turns black instead of snowy. Um, therefore, visualization and differentiation of the concealed hemorrhage associated with placental abruption from the surrounding placental tissue is difficult. Okay. A biophysical profile may be used for the management of patients with marginal placental abruption who are being conservatively treated, like watchful waiting. A score of six or below is an indicator of a compromised fetal status. And just to reiterate for everybody, a biophysical profile contains four parameters plus a non-stress test. The four parameters are fetal movement, fetal tone, fetal breathing, and the amniotic fluid volume. And you get a score of two for each. That's eight. And then if you get a reactive NST, that's two more or 10. Okay. Something called a Kleihauer betke test. Do you remember what that is, Bliss? No, I don't. Okay. okay. So a Kleihauer-Betke <laughs> test is a test where you draw blood on the mom and they look for fetal cells, fetal red cells. Mm -hmm. They can see if there's been a... Um... Mixing? Yeah. Thank you. I love that. <laughs> I need your help. Um, yeah. A mixing of the blood. Okay. So a Kleihauer-Betke test, which detects fetal blood cells in maternal circulation can be ordered or may be ordered. Um this test does not diagnose the, presen the, the uh, presence of placental abruption, but quantifies the presence of fetal blood in the maternal circulation. So this knowledge is really important for if, somebody, if a mom is Rh negative, because it may dictate how many amps of Rogam they may need. 
Hmm. I, I guess I'm a little confused because we do the um, NIPT, which detects fetal cells in the maternal bloodstream. So how is this different? Because it always that, that, that detects free fragments of DNA. Uh huh. It's different than fetal red blood cells. Oh, okay. And fetal yeah. red blood cells, by the way, have no DNA in them. I got it. I got it. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. They're, they're, uh, free cell DNA is like fragments of DNA, which are used for di- uh, prenatal diagnosis. Completely different. Got it. Okay. Uh, treatment and management. The onset of placental abruption is often ex- unexpected, sudden, as we've learned, and intense and requires immediate treatment most of the time. Women classified with a class one or mild placental abruption no signs of maternal or fetal distress, and pregnancy less than 37 weeks gestation may be managed conservatively. And by conservatively, they mean they don't. you don't have to be delivered. You can be watched. So the bleeding has stopped, everybody is stable, and it's a watch and see if there's another bleeding incident, basically. Right, because they meet the criteria for a class one, which is essentially minimal <laughs> vaginal bleeding, minimal uterine tenderness, no... Vital sign changes in mom or baby, right? Right. Okay. Um, If if the collected data results in a class two moderate or a class three severe classification, and the fetus is still viable, then delivery viable means alive. um, Then delivery is necessary because of the hypertonic contractions. A vaginal birth may occur rapidly. Given the potential for coagulopathy, vaginal birth presents less risk to the mother. Yeah. So if the baby can tolerate labor and the uterus is contracting like crazy and mom is progressing and her vitals are stable and baby's tracing is stable, you can let them deliver vaginally. It's better for the mom. And as we all know, vaginal delivery is better for the baby. However, if there are signs of fetal distress, obviously an emergency cesarean is necessary. Right? And I'm assuming... (laughs) that all of those should be managed in the hospital because of the potential of things changing quickly. Yes. Yes. This is not a home. This is, this is, you don't hear this coming out of my mouth that often, but this is not a home birth situation. But that's why I'm clarifying that. Yeah. That, that, that this would be, this is one of those times when it would be very prudent to be on a monitor and be doing continuous fetal monitoring to see if there's a change. Yeah, if you if you suspect a placental abruption in one of your clients, whether she's in labor or or prior to labor, that is a a, a reason to send her in. Yeah. Okay. Good. The different the differential diagnosis we've sort of mentioned, but bleeding during the second half of pregnancy is usually due to either placental abruption or placental previa. Um, the information below compares the presentation of abruption versus previa. Okay, so. Um, The onset of symptoms is sudden and intense for abruption, but quiet and insidious for placenta previa. Mm -hmm. Insidious. Some women women will just wake up with their, with blood on the bed. They didn't even know they were bleeding till they woke up with a placenta Mm -hmm. previa. Bleeding may be visible or concealed with placental abruption, but is external and visible with placenta previa. Mm -hmm. Okay. The degree of anemia or shock is greater than the visible blood loss in placental abruption and is equal to the blood loss in placenta previa. Because some can be concealed. Because with abruption, yeah, a lot of of it may be concealed. Mm -hmm. Pain is intense and acute with placental abruption 
and is unrelated to placenta previa. What do you mean unrelated? Pain is not a symptom of placenta previa. Okay, so this is my question for that. So placenta previa is when the placenta is over the os opening in some there in some 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 variation right yeah it's it could over. be marginal placenta previa central placenta previa right okay right. posterior so, anterior so as the cervix dilates that's when we start to see those vessels being open and so then that's when we would have the bleeding so you are gonna ha- usually you'll have contractions no because most placenta previa most placenta previa bleeding the first one occurs 32, 33, 34 weeks for no particular reason other than some small shearing as the uterus changes shape or whatever. It's not a labor-related thing. No contractions at all. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if you're contracting, it's going to get worse. But again, most placenta previa bleeding the first time is going to be not when someone's in labor because the first bleed is going to be at 32, 33, 34 weeks. Um, If you didn't, if you didn't, you know, if you didn't already know ahead of time, that's when it can be diagnosed. And we were, you know, one of these rules that you learn, like the rule of threes and other things that they teach you in residency, is that the first bleed with the placenta previa is rarely catastrophic. Right. But there will be a second one, and it usually is. (laughs) So that's what we're trained, that's what we're taught as residents. Okay. Um, Wait, why is it the rule of threes then? Well, not this one. But there oh, okay. are a lot, you know, <laughs> no, they're like ectopic pregnancies come in threes. You've heard that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, that's not really true. It's just one of those um, things. things we we, yeah. In the, in the call room, we were joking around and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. um, and the last one, uterine tone is firm and board-like in placenta abruption and soft and relaxed in placenta previa. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And, lastly, and lastly, prognosis. Um, the prognosis depends on when the patient presents to the hospital. If bleeding continues, both maternal and fetal lives are at stake. Partial placental separation is associated with low mortality compared with full separation. However, in both cases, without an emergent cesarean delivery, fetal demise may occur. The condition accounts for 5 to 8% of maternal deaths today. So of women that die in childbirth... Five to eight percent, one in sixteen to one in twenty, um, will be from a placental abruption. Okay. I'm not sure what the most common one would be. I don't think it's infection. I think blood loss is probably up there. Um, I would say hemorrhage. Hemorrhage <laughs> could be. Uh, I mean, one a rare one, but uh, is like amniotic fluid embolism. Um, I think rare. Yeah, pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And then lastly, placental abruption is a life-threatening disorder for both the mother and the fetus. Boom. boom. <laughs> did I say that? I did say boom, didn't I? <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, so this is a, I mean, obviously in our lighthearted way, we love to talk, but, but this is a, this is one of those, um, serious things that this is not something that you, you should be dealing with at home. And again, if you look at the things, there are things that are, make it more likely to happen. We went through that, but it's not, it's one of these things. It's just not predictable. Right. So when, when we were written about the one who went to 43 weeks and said, why did this happen? And why it, it, I you know, who knows? Yeah. We don't know. You didn't have any risk factors. So it just happens. 
sometimes and, that happens. And one in every 100 to one in every 100, I mean, one in every 100 to one in every 333 pregnancies, it's going to happen. <laughs> right. Right. Even, and, and the majority of those are managed inside of, um, inside of the medical model and, and still can happen. So. Oh yeah. Well it's, it's, yeah, these are not, I mean, again, the spontaneous ones are not anybody's fault. I mean, you know, car accidents and, and domestic violence and stuff, those are things that sometimes you can't, you know, well, I mean, the car accidents you maybe can't avoid, but domestic violence you certainly should be able to avoid. Uh, any other thoughts well, on that? Um, no, but I learned things and I love that. So thank you for, um, for your deep dive. Appreciate it. So Bliss, we have a not new sponsor, BirthFit. <laughs> They've been with us for a while now, so we can't call them new anymore. But they do have some exciting new news as BirthFit has its newest member, as our friend Lindsay ha had her baby. So congratulations, Lindsay and family. Yay! Yeah, BirthFit is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and the postpartum. Tell us a little bit about their programs. You know what? They cover you for all aspects of feminine care and birth and postpartum. It's really amazing. So the BirthFit Basics is a prenatal program is 30 days, no equipment necessary for any trimester of pregnancy. So you could try that out before you jump in further. And then they have a prenatal training program, which is full strength conditioning that requires minimal equipment like dumbbells, bands, and a box. I had a client the other day who was laying in bed like a good client um, taking my suggestion. She's like, you know, just laying in bed nursing all day. I'm feeling a little sore. You know, any stretches? And I said, you should really try this lying in program that they have. It's great for postpartum. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focuses on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum through breathing exercises, visualization and belly massages. I mean, come on, that sounds amazing. It is amazing. And then, yeah, and then they have um, kind of an intermediate birth fit basics, which requires no um, equipment. So that focuses on foundational breath work and movements to reestablish a solid foundation of core and pelvic floor stability before you go back to any other fitness classes. But they also have a more extensive postpartum program, which is 12 weeks focused on building a base level of general fitness through simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. Yeah, Pretty the birthright community is where you want to be if you're trying to conceive or know you want to be in the next one to three years. This is a monthly membership program by Women for Women that focuses on general strength and conditioning with respect around one's menstrual cycle. So go to birthfit.com and use the code instincts1, that's the number one, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program or go to birthfit.com, use the code instincts two to get a discount on the basics postpartum program. We love birthfit. It's OB and midwife approved. Absolutely. And go check out Lindsay. I mean, she looks great and she did her own fitness program throughout her whole pregnancy and had an amazing birth. So check it out. I was just going to say that wherever you choose to give birth or whatever choices you make, um, you, you miss 100% of the chances and choices you don't take. <laughs> He's laughing because so. that's a, a basketball analogy, right? 
Well, it's a sports analogy. Yeah. 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 But I get it. You know, I was thinking about like, you know, being, being an older woman, I start to think about things like, Hey, I could just have a stroke or a heart attack. My sister had a heart attack the other day and was in the hospital all of a sudden. So, you know, I mean, these, this is just part of being alive, right? Like when you leave your house, you could get in a fatal car accident. And when you go on a trip to Thailand, your plane could crash. Like, do you stop traveling? Do you stop living? Do you, you know, go to the doctor constantly? I mean, you could, that's a choice. Well, um, you make, but- you make some choices bliss because like, like I know that I have like bad knee and my hips are not great. Your hips not great. There's certain uh, things that we used to do that we're not going to be doing anymore. Maybe. Like when I go on a hike, I always read the trails and I read, is it a hard or is there a scramble up a rock field or something like that? That I'm not taking that one anymore. Now, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago, I would have taken that no problem whatsoever. So I don't take those certain chances, but I'm, yeah, but I'm not going to go out in bubble wrap or I'm not going to become agoraphobic. And I don't want this to, this, this topic today is not something that should discourage anybody from getting pregnant or anything like that. I mean, tragedies happen to non-pregnant people too. (laughs) So you just, you know, you live your life and you just are aware of these things and the awareness is what we're trying to bring to people. This is not meant in any way, shape, or form to um, to instruct people, uh, you know, what they should or should not do. It's just for information only. Right. So give us a little tease about the other thing we're going to be talking about in a couple of minutes on our Patreon. <clears throat> tease? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to talk about the 30-minute rule for expedited delivery. Is it fact or fiction? And this is an article, as I said, from the Gray Journal. And I'll just read a, I'll read a little bit. Initially developed from hospital feasibility data from the 1980s, the 30-minute rule has perpetuated the belief that the decision to incision time in an emergency cesarean delivery should be less than 30 minutes uh, to preserve the most favorable neonatal outcomes. Though a view of the though a review of the history, available data on delivery timing and associated outcomes and consideration of of feasibility across several hospital systems, the use and applicability of this rule are explored and its reconsideration is called for. So that's what we're going to talk about. Was this this just another stage one thinking? I bet the answer is yes, but stay tuned. Shocking, is it? And for those of you who are listening to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, we are so glad that you joined us today. We hope that you really enjoyed this episode. If so, please share and uh, go on and give us a rating and tell us um, and everybody else what you think so that more people can find us and we can continue to um, spread this good information. Yeah. Or you can write to us through birthinginstinctspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail, which we neglected a lot, at 805-399-0439. So until next time, we hope that you will support our sponsors. And for those of you who are Patreon, just hold on. We'll be right back. And Bliss? Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 